Brethren, we are living in the last days. We see that around us every day in the news. We read the headlines. And certainly just within the last year, this world has lurched forward as never before, closer to a dramatic finish. We're living through that. We have a front row seat. And yet, much more than just spectators, we are participants. It's like we're on a raft together. On the river, we can hear the roar of the rapids ahead of us. We know it's coming. We know it's time to buckle in. And that's the reality of our life today, isn't it? But after those rapids ahead, we know God's kingdom will be set up on this earth in a whole new age will begin. We need to have the confidence and faith that that is real and that is coming because that is what God has said He will do. You know, in the sermon today, I'd like to parallel our experience that we are living through right now and in the years just ahead of us with a figure we read of in the Bible who also lived with his people in a crisis point. In Israel, a turning point from one age into another and faced many obstacles and uncertainties and even dangers successfully because he had faith. That man was Joshua. I think we can learn a lot from the strength of faith that he had even under duress. It's quite a remarkable example as we look at it. And as you know, I'm sure, and you've studied it. Someone who lived in tumultuous and pivotal times as we do, and yet succeeded because he had faith. If you'd like a title for this sermon today, Be Strong and of Good Courage. Be Strong and of Good Courage. Who was Joshua? Unger's Bible Dictionary describes him this way. It is difficult to form an estimate of Joshua's character because the man is overshadowed by the very greatness of the events in which he is placed. And yet this is not a dishonor to him, but a glory. A lesser man would have been seen and heard more. His life, though recorded with fullness of detail, shows no stain by the faithful serving of his youth. He was taught to command as a man. As a citizen, he was patriotic in the highest degree. As a warrior, fearless and blameless. As a judge, calm and impartial. He was quite equal to every emergency under which he was to act. Valiant without temerity. Active without precipitation. No care, no advantage, no duty is neglected by him. He ever looked up for and obeyed divine direction with the simplicity of a child and wielded the great power given him with calmness, unostentation, without swerving, to the accomplishment of a high, unselfish purpose. Pretty high praise. He earned by manly vigor a quiet, honored old age and retained his faith and loyalty as almost to his last breath, as he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. An unusual man in that, even in among the great men of the Bible, He didn't have any glaring faults, at least none that we're aware of. That's unusual out of the heroes of the Bible. 
a man who for much of his life worked under the shadow of a towering figure in Moses. The man who was the the, the founder, let's say, of the nation of Israel. And Joshua's life work, think about it, was even finishing the work of Moses. You know, his whole life he lived under the shadow of a, a spiritual giant in Israel. And yet, he distinguished himself in outstanding ways. Consider for a moment all that Joshua did in his lifetime. He started out in Egypt. He knew the rigors of slavery, saw how God delivered Israel under Moses. He courageously guided the Israelites in battle against the Amalekites. And you know, as a side note, think about it. As he was fighting the Amalekites, and remember the story how when Moses would pray and lift his arms up, the Israelites would prevail, and when his arms would flag and fall, the Amalekites would prevail. And when he'd raise his hands up, the Israelites would prevail, and when they would fall, the Amalekites would prevail. You don't think Joshua noticed that? You know, he lived it. He could see the hands go up, and he lived the fact that his, his soldiers went forward. And then when the hands went down, they were beaten back. You think that made a powerful impression on Joshua, even at that time. When Moses moved the tabernacle of meeting outside the camp, he left Joshua in charge of the tabernacle. He was among the 70 elders of Israel who saw Jesus Christ and ate a meal with them. That's in Exodus 24:11. Afterwards, he was the only person allowed to go up with Moses into the mountain of the Lord at least partially up into the mountain when Moses went. He was one of the ten spies to go into the... I'm sorry, twelve spies to go into the land, and only one of two who gave a good report. And, of course, because of that, only one of two men who were allowed from that generation to cross over into the land. God worked miracles through him in the conquest of Canaan, the miraculous damming of the River Jordan. Of course, the walls coming down of Jericho... And the only person ever in the Bible to command the sun to stand still. And it did. Quite an amazing person. When it comes down to it, Joshua was a type, was symbolic, let's say, of Jesus Christ. In fact, his name, Hosea, originally, salvation, was changed by Moses to Jehoshua or Joshua. And, of course, Jesus is the equivalent English equivalent of Joshua. Let's go to Hebrews here for a moment and uh, see the correlation between uh, Joshua and uh, the Israelites and, of course, uh, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Captain, and where He is bringing us at the end of this age. Hebrews chapter, chapter 3. In the book of Hebrews, Paul is warning his audience about not hardening themselves, not rebelling against God, challenging them to have faith and not fall for the same mistakes that the Israelites did when they were not allowed to enter the land. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse verse 16, For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? 
So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief or lack of faith. So how important is faith? Was it to that generation? Those who failed and then those who succeeded in the next generation. How important is it to us? Going on, chapter 4 and verse 1, he's now speaking to the church. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you should seem to come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said. So I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. You know, we are striving to enter the kingdom of God, to be born into the very family of God. And what is it that's going to help us to be successful? Well, clearly faith and trust and confidence and who God is, and what He's doing, and how He's leading us every step of the way, and that He will accomplish what He promised. You know, it's interesting that it's been almost a full generation since Mr. Armstrong died. What happened to the church in the late 1980s and early 90s? A group of people decided it was too hard to be different. They didn't want to be those crazy Sabbath keepers anymore. They didn't want to be those who were labeled a cult anymore and observed different days anymore. They didn't want to be told the truth when it was hard and difficult and required sacrifices. And they turned back because of fear. Fear prevailed. They came to fear being thought of as different from mainstream Christianity. And a new administration began to instill fear in the congregation. Brethren, what caused the congregation of Israel to turn back when they attempted to go into Israel or, or Canaan at Kadesh Barnea? It was fear. And just a generation ago, a whole generation of God's people turned back from their goal of the kingdom. Certainly, we hope most of them were never converted in the first place. And the game's not over, is it? We certainly hope that God will will help more find their way. And God is their judge. But He doesn't want any of us to miss attaining our goal. And it's so close. We're almost there. We have to have faith. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 3, notice. He said, For he who, <clears throat> for we who have believed do enter that rest as he has said, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place they shall not enter my Rest. So now Paul weaves into the symbolism the seventh day, the, the, the Sabbath, the creation week, and how God rested on the, the seventh day. Verse 6, Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, 
after such a long time, as it has been said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. Now, what is this talking about? Because Joshua did give them rest. We read that in Joshua 21, verse 43. It says, So the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which he had sworn to give their fathers, and they took possession of it, and the Lord gave them rest all around. So what's he talking about? Joshua did lead them into a new land, a good land, where they prospered. Well, if Paul was not talking about that rest, what was he talking about? Verse 9, notice, he says, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. So this word here, rest, is sabbatismos, literally a keeping of the Sabbath. One of the profound proofs of the Sabbath in the New Testament and for New Testament Christians There is a keeping of the Sabbath for the people of God. But what is the Sabbath symbolic of? What does it represent? What are we reminded of when we keep the Sabbath? Yes, the creation week. Yes, the day that God rested. But it's also pointing forward to the millennium, isn't it? It's also prophetic of the seventh 1,000-year period that we are going to enter soon. That's not that far away. So every time we come to enjoy and worship on the Sabbath, we're looking back to the creation, but we're also looking forward to the millennium. And it's a reminder of how close it is and how we are almost there. He says in verse 10, For he who has entered his rest has all his himself also ceased from his work, as God did from his, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, let in, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. So Paul is saying, let's be focused, let's be alert, let's be zeroed in on our goal of entering the kingdom of God, of making it, of being there, not just marking time or treading water, but being ready to actually enter the family of God. That's why we're here. Yes, we're, we're doing the work. Yes, there are other things we're doing. But every day that we wake up brings us closer to inheriting eternity, brethren. How often do we think about that? And how much do we need to focus on it? Especially when we're discouraged and we have trials and we have problems and setbacks. Let's turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 31. I think that's why the life of Joshua is is so helpful, because he faced trials, he faced setbacks, he faced difficulties. And yet look what was told him at his commission. Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 1. Then Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I can no longer go out and come in. Also the Lord has said to me, You shall not cross over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself crosses over before you. He will destroy these nations from before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua himself crosses over before you, just as the Lord has said. 
In verse 6, he says, Be strong, therefore, and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them, for the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. You know, we read that in the New Testament, that he will never leave us or forsake it. Where is that quoted from? The words that were spoken to Joshua. When he was about to enter the new land, You know, that courage and that strength of faith became a theme for that whole generation. You know that when you read the book of Joshua. How many times does it say, be strong and of good courage? Over and over and over again. Moses telling Joshua, God telling Joshua, Joshua telling the people, the people telling Joshua. You know, back and forth. It was a theme of their thinking of faith. You know, it must have been pretty awesome. As Moses was here passing the baton, 120 years old, all the things that had happened, all the time that they had spent together, Moses leading the people, and he was looking over into that land, and what an incredible panorama it is from where where they were. I've been there in Israel and across on the other side of the Jordan. It's an incredible view. And Moses was there and said, you know, I'm almost there. I can see it. I can taste it. God is not going to allow me to do it. But Joshua will take you across. And can you imagine the the disappointment in Moses when he he was almost there? And yet according, obviously accepting the will of God. And the disappointment of the Israelites, the mixed feelings they had that that their leader wasn't going to take them over. And yet, he passed the baton to Joshua. As we are so close, as we are looking over, let's say, from Mount Nebo, as we are looking into the few years ahead right now, it seems like forever But brethren, we are so close. You think about the span of human history, thousands of years, the dramas of life and death that people have gone through. How literally seconds away are we from Jesus Christ coming back to this earth and from accomplishing what we we hear about, we think about at the Feast of Tabernacles? Within reach of it. It's just right in front of us. Will we have faith? Luke 18, verse 7 says, God shall avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them, but he says he will avenge them speedily. You know, we we wait a long time. It seems to take forever. Some say my Lord delays his coming, and yet when it happens, it's going to happen dramatically. It's going to be right there. He says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? He's looking for it in us. And with his help, we can have it. And we're going to need it. It's not put on. It's not worked up. It's not just emotion. It's real. And it's God living in us through his Spirit. And without that faith and confidence, brethren, we won't make it without the trust and faith 
and utter assurance that he is leading us by the hand over into that promised land. The disciples said to Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. Help us to have the faith that we need to see you and to really accomplish our purpose. And he didn't chide them for that. Brethren, how can we grow in faith? How do we do that? Well, in the remaining time, I'd like to talk about some specific things I think we can glean from the story of Joshua as we grow in faith, as we look to that city that's almost here. Number one, number one, we're not going to read all the story of Joshua. There's too much to cover, but we'll look at a few points. We grow in faith by simply following directions. We grow in faith by simply following directions. This is one of the lessons we learn of the story of of Joshua. Have you ever bought something from the store that requires assembly? If you're like me, the first thing you do, you bring it home and you rip it open and you tear out all the, the paper bags and the plastic bags and all the parts and you spread them all over the floor and you start putting it together, right? And in about two hours, then you start looking for the instruction book because it's not working. Typically, I put something together about three times before it really is done. Because you, you don't quite understand the, the, the directions and you're, you're, you're trying to put it together and then the more you do it, the more it makes sense. <clears throat> Brethren, are we looking at God's instructions as important or do we look at them as something we ignore? You know, when Joshua was confronting Jericho with these massive walls, contemplating his role and contemplating the mission he was given to conquer the land. What must he have been thinking? Archaeologists, archaeologists tell us that those walls from the ground floor must have been about 40 feet high. The first 20-foot section, a retaining wall, a stone retaining wall, and the next 20 feet or so, a brick wall. And... Um, so what, what was he thinking? <clears throat> you know, Jericho was a logical start, a, a place to get a foothold in the land. But uh, this was a, a powerful fortress to try to attack. It was um, not a huge area, maybe uh, six to eight or nine acres of land. Had its own spring. It, was, it could outlast a siege for a long, long time. And so how are you going to attack Jericho? Let's turn to Joshua chapter 5 and verse 13. Joshua chapter 5 and verse 13. It says, It came to pass that Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us? Or are you for our adversaries? So he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him. He understood this was the word. He understood this was God. And said to him, What does my Lord say to to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out. None came in. 
And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king, and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all of you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days, and seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout. Then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. And that's, of course, what uh, archaeologist Bryant Wood explains that what happened is that this 20-foot brick wall, uh, as a result of some something that happened, whether it was an earthquake or something, of course, we know what happened. The 20-foot brick wall fell, and it fell out, and it produced an incline so that they could scramble up that 20-foot retaining wall. Now, again, some dispute when this happened, but uh, others pinpoint it exactly when the Joshua and, and the Israelites would have come through. The interesting, other interesting thing about the destruction of Jericho is that they find one section of the wall which did not fall down. One section at one end of the city that remained intact, and we know that one person's house would have been preserved. Just kind of an interesting sidelight. The point is God gave Joshua specific instructions on how to take the city. Now, did these make any sense at all from a human point of view? You know, march around the city six days, march around it a seventh day, uh, blow some trumpets, shout and attack, and you still got a 40-foot wall, you know. The only possible way that it would work is if something would happen that could not be seen. Brethren, what is the evidence of things not seen? That is faith. What did Joshua have to have? Faith. And what did he have to do? He had to follow God's instructions exactly. And that's, of course, what they did. They walked around, marched around, and on the seventh day they blew the trumpets and shouted, The walls came tumbling down. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30 says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. Some have theorized that the vibrations of the walking and the marching somehow loosened the brick, you know, or the vibrations of their shouting made the walls fall down. There are all kinds of crazy nonsense theories that come around. Or maybe that, well, Joshua just was kind of aware of seismic science at that time and knew that there were earthquakes that happened in that area. And, well, it just kind of loosened the brick and somehow, well, you, you know. Hebrews 11 said that by faith the walls came down. It was God doing it, but working through a man who had faith in him and to follow his instructions meticulously. Brethren, what about us? As we're looking ahead, as we're looking to the future, as we're looking to this crucial and critical time in our lifetimes, 
let's make sure we're following God's directions, doing what he says. You know, as parents, one of the first things we try to instill our children in our children is just follow directions, you know, just do what I say. That's kind of a uh, lowest common denominator, okay? <clears throat> children and teens, I, I have a challenge for you. I'd like you to test your parents. Just try following their directions without questioning, without complaining, without saying why. Sometimes it's okay to ask why. That's all right. But, but generally, you know, just try this and see what happens when you just follow directions. And then when you do it a second time, and then when you do it a third time and a fourth time, you begin to see that, you know what, actually, I have more trust in my parents. They actually kind of know what they're talking about. I challenge you, children, teens. You know, we had a bake sale last week. Mr. League was talking about it. When you bake a cake or, or something like that, how do you do it? Well, you follow a recipe, right? I guess some people don't follow a, recipe, a written recipe, but, well, even if they don't follow a written recipe, they have a recipe in their mind. What does the recipe represent? Well, it's a list of exact ingredients put in exactly at the right amount in the exact right way at exactly the right time to achieve a desired result. And ladies, what happens if you say, well, I just maybe another teaspoon of uh, baking soda. How about that? That won't make any difference, right? Or maybe an extra two teaspoons of salt. That's not very much. What will happen? It doesn't turn out right. So when you're looking at a recipe and when you're making a cake, what do you do? You have trust in the recipe. You trust that if I do this, Things will work out a certain way. And the more you make that recipe, the more your trust grows. God has a recipe for our life, and He wants us to be confident. He wants us to know that when we do it His way, things will work out. Yes, we'll have trials. Yes, we'll have difficulties. Yes, we will suffer. Yes, He will stretch us to help us to grow. But in the end, it always works out. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. Let's turn over to Joshua chapter 1 and verse verse 1. We get a little little more uh, in the story here. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 1. God took special care to encourage Joshua that he was with him, that he would guide him, he would back him up. If he just had faith and courage and trusted him. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun. Sidelight, you know that Joshua had no parents, right? He was the son of Nun. Okay. Just think about it. Okay. Joshua, the son of Moses' assistant, said, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land that I'm going to give them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses. 
And then he describes it, how great it will be. No man, verse 5, shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. This is as he was just beginning this conquest of the land. And again, let's parallel it with our experience, where we're going, how close we are to entering that land ourselves, the kingdom of God, the resurrection, being immortal, being made eternal spirit beings. He says, be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous to do what? To observe, to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. Mr. Cologne mentioned that. God said, don't turn to the right. Don't turn to the left. Just keep going straight ahead. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night to observe, to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and have good success. Haven't I commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Don't be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You know, there are a lot of ways to depart to the right hand or the left, and especially in our world today, they seem to multiply. There are more and more ways popping up to get turned to the right or the left all the time, to miss the mark. But there's really only one way to hit the mark. We read about the narrow gate, the straight gate in the New Testament. The question is, are we wandering all over the road? Are we kind of a reckless driver in the spiritual road of life? Or are we... Going straight. Are we doing what God says? Do we know what God says? He said, meditate on this law day and night. You know, it's interesting. One of the Psalms talks about, O Israel, open wide your mouth and I will fill it. God says, he's saying teaching of his his ways and his laws. My wife and I have talked about that and, and, and what it's like to feed infant children, you know, once they start taking food with a spoon, sometimes they get so hungry and so upset that they won't even open their mouth. Why? Because they're hungry. And what won't they do? They won't open their mouth, which would help them to get fed because they're upset, right? And so you're trying to think of how do you get this mouth open to get the spoon in there and maybe you kind of wedge it in well that makes them more upset and then maybe they're about to cry and just before the vocal thing comes out you jam the spoon in there and get the food in there just in time right mothers you know exactly what i'm talking about my wife is very adept at getting the spoon in there just in time right hand or left hand it doesn't make a difference Now, me, I usually was a split second too late, or I missed the mouth, you know, hit the cheek, uh, hit the chin, whatever. But brethren, you know, when we're frustrated 
Can we sometimes get like that? We do the opposite of what we need. We're desperately needing food and we're crying out to God, fill me, feed me, help me to have the faith I need. And if we're not praying and if we're not studying, if we're not focusing on him, we're, we're fighting his effort to try to get that spoon in us. Well, when we get to the end of our rope and we're frustrated and we've really had it and our life feels like a bunch of pieces of appliance all over the floor, brethren, let's, let's check out the instruction book. Let's start rereading the instructions. Let's pick it up. The more we do that, the more faith we grow in. The more faith and assurance and confidence we'll have in the coming days and weeks and years. It's a key to faith in the end times just as much as it was in the time of Joshua. Number two. Number two, we grow in faith by rooting out sin. What do we mean by this? Well, let's look at another thing that happened in the story. Joshua chapter 7 and verse 1. Joshua chapter 7 and verse Verse 1, one of the instructions given to the Israelites was when they attacked Jericho, not a thing was to be taken for themselves. Everything was to be destroyed, all except for the gold and silver. That was to be given to the treasury. But everything was to be a burnt offering to God. He was saying, you don't take anything. But what happened? Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, but the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things or or, or those things that were under the ban or those things that were not to be touched. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things, so the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. And what happened next when Achan didn't follow those instructions, which we read are so important? Verse 2, now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside beth on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to them, Don't let all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. You know, ironic that you know, they, they had really grown in confidence uh, in one sense, but uh, didn't realize that that God was not going to be behind this. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them down on the descent. Therefore the hearts of the people melted and became like water. This was not supposed to happen. It was a disaster. Now what? Verse 6, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? And God, of course, revealed what happened. Joshua made a diligent inquiry 
and we understand through the casting of lots, <clears throat> uh, not something Joshua could discern by himself, but God had brought it to light what Achan had done miraculously. And, of course, he was, he was uh, brought forward and, and put to death. He was put to death. <clears throat> not a pleasant story, not a happy ending. Apparently, not just Achan was executed, but his whole family. It, it's, it's horrible. Uh, one commentator has conjectured that perhaps his family was complicit in the crime and helped him to hide um, the articles. Regardless, he, he made a poor choice. But think about it. Where was Achan's mind focused? Certainly not on obeying the instructions of God, but just as importantly, he wasn't thinking how his actions would affect the whole group. Because his actions, 36 other families also suffered a tragedy. 36 other husbands or brothers or sons. You know, how did those families feel? When they found out why their sons or fathers or brothers were struck down. All because of Achan's selfishness. Think about it. He wanted to do what he wanted to do. We heard about that in the sermonette. Didn't matter what the repercussions were. But they hadn't done anything. Brethren, how damaging is sin? You know, it's fashionable in our world today to believe, well, as long as I don't hurt anyone else, then I can do whatever I want. <clears throat> but the lesson of sin, again, as Mr. Cologne brought out, it's interesting how these things parallel. The lesson of sin is that it always hurts. It always causes suffering. And that it often causes disaster even to innocent bystanders. So what's the point? We are responsible for each other. We are our brothers and sisters' keepers. We are responsible for our example and our influence on each other, whether it's good or bad. Children and teens, again, are you beginning to take responsibility for how you affect others? Are you taking responsibility for how you impact your brothers or your sisters or your friends at church? Are you kind to them? Are you kind to everyone? Do you show them mercy? Do you apologize when you're wrong? You know, it's not too early to start doing these things, children. Let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We are, we are one body. Mr. League mentioned this. When one suffers, we all suffer. When one's hurting, we all hurt. We impact one another. We're all in the same boat. We're all in the same life raft heading down that river towards those rapids. And beyond is the kingdom of God. But we've got to get through those rapids first. How are we going to do it? 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse Verse 12, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, 
and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not the hand, am I not of the body? Is it therefore not of the body? If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And of course, he's saying that's ridiculous. You couldn't have a whole body of all ears. You know, that would look horrible. That'd be very strange. It wouldn't be able to walk around. And if it did walk around, that would look even more weird, you know. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. And if all were one member, where would the body be? We're all connected. We all play a part. We all influence and impact one another all the time for good or bad. That's the point. You know, we had a marriage seminar last week, and we we talked about how wives and husbands uh, impact each other. And one of the basic premises is how you treat your wife or husband is you're treating your own body that way. Why would you harm your, your, your spouse? Because you're just harming yourself. We as husbands and wives all need to, to, to strive to improve how we treat one another. Mr. Ames mentioned that he, he strives for the five-second rule. You know, when his wife uh, asks for something, that he, he strives to get it for her in five seconds. Remember that? I think he's, he's mentioned that before. I have not attained to that yet. My wife and I discussed this. <clears throat> we figured mine was probably the five-minute rule or maybe the five-hour rule. And upon further reflection, probably the five-day rule. So I'm, I'm still working on it. I haven't quite attained to where Mr., uh, Mr. Ames is. But the key is, are we, are we thinking about how we impact one another? Everything we do, that was the point. What was Achan thinking about when he took that Babylonian garment and the gold and the silver? Was he thinking of the faith of going forward and being obedient? He knew the rules. He knew the instructions. Was he thinking about how his faith would be impacted by what he did? And the guilt, because we know sin destroys faith, and guilt destroys faith. No, he was thinking about himself. We can't think about ourselves and about God and serving him at the same time. We know that. And that's why it's so important, and God is so adamant that sin has to be dealt with swiftly and quickly in our life and repented of and gotten rid of so we can quickly reestablish when we sin an attitude and a relationship of faith with God because he doesn't want us to to be guilty and and feel ashamed. Now, is the lesson of Achan that we are to uncover the sin of each other in each other's lives? Are we to look for the Achan in each other? You know, if we stoned each other every time we sinned, We'd have a very small church, wouldn't we? In fact, none of us would be here. None of us. 
Sure, sometimes those in authority have to deal with issues, just like Joshua did. But that is not our job, is it, brethren, to look for the Achan in each other. It's our job to root it out of ourselves as we're looking in faith to our leader, to Jesus Christ. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal last May that talked about Navy SEAL training. Uh, you know, the, the military um, operation that, that they, the Navy SEALs sent in for clandestine missions under the most severe conditions. Uh, oftentimes their training is intense. They're pushed to the limits of their physical and mental capacity. And many don't complete, in fact, most, I think, don't complete the training. But for those who do, it's interesting that one member of the Navy SEALs described uh, what it was like and what got those who succeeded through the worst of it called Hell Week. And he described it this week, this way. He said, the vicious beauty of Hell Week is that you either survive or fail. You endure or you quit. You do or you don't. Some men who seemed impossibly weak at the beginning of SEAL training, men who puked on runs and had trouble with pull-ups, made it. Some men who were skinny and short and whose teeth chattered just looking at the ocean also made it. Some men who were visibly afraid, sometimes to the point of shaking, made it too. Almost all the men who survived possess one common quality. Even in great pain, faced with the test of their lives, they had the ability to step outside of their own pain, put aside their own fear, and ask, How can I help the guy next to me? They had more than the fist of courage and physical strength. They also had a heart large enough to think about others. Brethren, that's the Navy SEALs. What about us? What about us? The children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, and some of them lost their lives. What about us in the situations that we face now and and that we will face downstream? You know, Satan knows where we are. He knows who we are, and he will do everything he can to get us off track. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. And we have to be able to stand before our enemies. How do we stand before our enemies. How do we stand before Satan the devil who wants to destroy us? Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. We've read this many times. It says, <clears throat> Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The children of Israel could not stand before their enemies. Why? Because of sin. Because of unresolved, unrepented sin. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth and having put on your breastplate of righteousness. Walking in the words of God, <clears throat> and when we sin, and we all do, repenting and asking for his forgiveness quickly. 
the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Brethren, let's make sure we're not sabotaging our faith in Christ by unresolved sin and hurting those around us because that's what sin does. Let's make sure we're following directions of God. And when we do stumble, we quickly repent. We quickly get cleaned up and clear the decks and wipe the slate clean and repair our relationships so our faith in Christ can be full and can be flowing and can be confident. Again, God's kingdom is just around the corner. It's almost here. We can taste it. We can almost feel it and see it. Let's not let sin keep us from confidently finishing our race. One more lesson we can learn from Joshua about faith. Number three, we grow in faith by seeking God's will every day. We grow in faith by seeking God's will every single day. Let's turn back to Joshua chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9. After the destruction of Jericho and the destruction of Ai, there is another interesting part of the story. You know, uh, I'm sure the story, a group of people called the Gibeonites uh, came to make an alliance with Joshua. And this is what it uh, what happened. Chapter 9 and verse 1, It came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, in the hills and the lowland and all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, uh, they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and parched sandals on their feet and old garments on themselves. And all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua and they did an academy performance, didn't they? I mean, they pulled out all the stops. They had all the right, you know, costumes and all the right props. And it was just... Marvelous. They went to Joshua to the camp of Gilgal, and they said to him and the men of Israel, We've come from a far country, now therefore make a covenant with us. And, of course, the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us. We're kind of suspicious. uh, So how can we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And they said, Who are you and where are you from? And they gave them the the uh, the whole story. And so they, verse 11, the elders and the inhabitants of the country spoke to us. Take these provisions, this bread of ours, we took hot. Look, it was hot when we took it from our houses uh, a long time ago. Now you can see with your own eyes, it's dry and moldy. Our story must be true. Look, you can see it. You know? I mean, you can, you can just, this is, this is incredible. They were filled, and now they're torn in our garments. And look at how old our our clothes are. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. Everything matched up from the eyes. Everything matched up with what they could see. But what is faith? 
Faith is the evidence of the things not seen. Faith is walking not by sight, but by faith. And they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And it happened at the end of three days. And boy, did the fat hit the fan. After they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors of all things. They had been duped. Can you imagine how infuriated Joshua and the Israelites were when that happened? But they had they had made a promise, so they didn't attack them. And why didn't they seek counsel? Well, maybe they were flushed with victory. After all, we had they had conquered two different cities already, demolished them to the ground. Maybe they were feeling pretty good. Maybe it was the flattery that these so-called ambassadors from afar, I mean, they were, they had come from a long ways, so their reputation must have gone a long ways, right? Maybe it was flattery. They felt, they felt pretty good. Whatever the cause, they fell for it. And this is the, really the only real mistake that Joshua made in the conquest. It didn't hurt anybody. You know, no one died. It wasn't fatal, wasn't real serious, but it was a mistake. And it seems like Joshua learned a bitter lesson. Because after this, you see that he took control. He, 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 th- this seemed like even a decision that was kind of made by committee when you read it in the language. That he was saying some things and then the elders of, of the, of Israel were, are also swearing to that they would not, uh, destroy them. But after that, Joshua, I think he learned his lesson. That faith is not stagnant. Faith is not what we learned or accomplished yesterday or last week. Faith is not the connection we had with God last week or yesterday. It's not the confidence to face challenges five years ago. Faith is now. Faith is now. Faith is every single day seeking God's will at every turn and every step that we take. How big or how little. Every decision in our eyes. We can't see all the facts. We don't know all the facts. And that's why we need God's help. It's a matter of heart. You know, a lot of times decisions are not a always clear cut. They're not always black and white. There's not really always a right or a wrong. Many of the decisions we make are, are really more a matter of what is God's will. And it's hard to tell sometimes. It's hard to quantify. But do we have and do we look to and do we ask for God's counsel every single day? We read in Matthew 6, 20, 16, 24, that Christ said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his own life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know, brethren, this might mean giving up our life someday. We might have to do that, our physical life. But right now, losing our life means giving up our way giving up 
that we want all the time and having full confidence that God is there and he has a plan and wants what's best for us. And we ask him and we need his counsel every day. And the more we do that, the more we see his work in our life, the more we can trust his will because we've seen it work. Joshua chapter 23 and verse and verse 1. We're always going to get thrown curveballs in life, and that's what the Gibeonites did. They threw them a curveball. But what do we do? Well, we'll have some of those, but our goal is to, to try not to get too sidetracked by things that take us down dead ends because we don't have the time to go down a lot of dead ends. The hour is late. The time is urgent. There's not much time for backtracking. <clears throat> In the last days of Joshua's life, he gathered the elders, he gathered the Israelites to him and re- rehearsed the events of the conquest. And this is what he said, Joshua 23 and verse Verse 1, Now it came to pass a long time after the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies round about that Joshua was old, advanced in age, and Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders, for their heads and their judges and their officers, and said to them, I am old and advanced in age. You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has fought for you. See, I have divided to you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from the Jordan with all the nations that have been cut off. And the Lord will, your God will expel them from before you and drive them out of your sight. So you shall possess their land as the Lord promised you. Notice in verse 14. Verse 14. Behold, This day I'm going the way of all the earth, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of the word has failed. Therefore it shall come to pass. And then he talks about if they would turn aside and all the things that would happen. But brethren, when we look in our life, what has God ever failed in? Yes, he's allowed us to have trials. Yes, he's allowed us to have difficulties. But has he ever let us down? And we can look back and see that and have absolute confidence in that. And someday when we're past those rapids, when we already are in the kingdom, when we're already immortal and eternal spirit beings, we're going to look back even more and see, yes, he did everything that he promised he would chapter 24 and verse 13 chapter 24 and verse 13 he says i have given you a land for which you did not labor and cities which you did not build and you dwell in them you eat of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant now therefore fear the lord serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other sides of the river and in egypt serve the lord and if it seems evil to you to serve the lord choose for yourselves This day who you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, Joshua said, we will serve the Lord. What an incredible example. What an incredible 
personal integrity he had as well, an amazing leader who accomplished an incredible task of bringing them into the land, not just because he was a skilled warrior, not just because he was an able leader, but because he had faith, because he had faith and trust and confidence that God was real and that he was really accomplishing what he said. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 1. As we are facing our difficulties and as we are facing the future and as we are striving to enter that kingdom that is just right there, just beyond our reach, we're almost there. Brethren, we also have to have the same faith. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. Just do what I said, God says. It will work out for you. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. You know, live in mercy. Be merciful with one another. Care for one another. Bind them about your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart and so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. God is bringing us to an incredible land, to an incredible kingdom. And Christ will find faith on the earth when he returns. The only question is, in whom will he find it? In whom will he find it? We are so close God's kingdom is literally just around the corner. How could we stop now? No matter what. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, it's pretty amazing when you think about it. The time that we are living in, how God, the Father, and Jesus Christ are anticipating the events that are just ahead of us. You know, this is not just the climax of, let's say, the New Testament age. This is not just the climax of the last 6,000 years. But think about it. The Father and the Word have been talking about and have been planning about and have been designing a program to bring many sons to glory. For how long, brethren? How many billions of years, perhaps, have they been planning the moment that is just ahead of us when they bring and reproduce themselves and actually create God beings that are in their family? How much anticipation do they have for what's just ahead of us? How long have they been waiting? How important is it to them? How many seconds are left? 
Doesn't seem like seconds to us. But as they guide the events in the Middle East and North Africa and Europe, as this, as Germany starts to really take shape and have a stronger hand, and our country begins to have it, their protective hand lifted, and they're guiding those events, how much excitement do they have and have had for perhaps billions and billions of years? For the moment when you and I are going to enter their family. Cross over, let's say, the proverbial River Jordan and enter the promised land. It's going to happen. We're not there yet. But he says in verse 13, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope, your faith, your trust, your assurance fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. What will the theme of our generation be? When we look back someday, and when we gather and we talk, About this time, what will the theme of this generation be? Well, we already know what one theme is. The Laodicean era. A complacent era. An era that is blind and naked and has works that do not measure up to what God wants. But you know, not everyone will be blind and naked and complacent. When we look back, not everyone will be spewed out of God's mouth. Some will be valiant for the truth. Some will be strong and courageous and faithful. Who will it be? God help us to be those people. Let's make sure it is. In conclusion, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 35. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 35. What a remarkable future we have ahead of us. And God will take us every step of the way to get there. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 35, he says, Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, just like Joshua. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Brethren, let's keep our eye on the goal. Let's keep focused on our responsibility. Let's do our part. Let's make sure we're doing what God says diligently. Let's make sure we're rooting sin out of our lives so we can stand boldly before the throne of God. Let's make sure we're seeking God's will daily so we are in tune right in the center of His will, as Mr. Meredith often says. Brethren, let's be like Joshua. Let's be strong and of good courage.